It's my privilege to introduce our guest speaker today. He's no stranger to us. He's been here before, although not during the COVID era. Uh, HUD and Nancy McWilliams. We met them in Southern California January of 2000. That's 21 years ago. And uh, this guy's been following me around ever since. <laughs> They've come to our home many times, and we've been in their home in Colorado. Um, HUD is serving, and Nancy too, with Global Training Network. He's a senior staff member, mission-focused. They've been married for 52 years. They have three children and four grandchildren. They now live just west of Fort Collins, Colorado, in a Dottie house with their daughter. And uh, it's pretty exciting because that's kind of what we're doing too. HUD went to the University of North Carolina. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> UNC, University of North Colorado. <laughs> Sorry. It's not a Tar Heel, believe me. North Texas State University. He's pastored for 20 years in the Dallas, Texas area. Nancy has her degree and master's degree in education, has been a substitute teacher for 27 years. And uh, we met them through our church planting ministry. In fact, when we were interviewed, um, it was about a two hour, two and a half hour interview with these guys and uh, it was very painful. <laughs> Not for him. <laughs> um, just another thing to say here. They have served in missions for 37 years now. HUD's been in private practice as a licensed uh, psychologist. And uh, his probably major focus is to grow up from the inside out. And it's a pleasure to have them here and in our home. And please pray for us. Uh, they leave on Wednesday, and that's three more days, so. <laughs> yes, thank you for your prayers for them as well. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Next time I'll ask Susan to introduce me. <laughs> wow, uh, fun to be here. I have a desire to disturb you a little bit if I can. Uh, I actually wrote a book with that title. So I am twisted. That's why he needs prayer in the next few days to survive that. I just think about things a little off-kilter sometimes, and it's just my way of trying to make sense out of life, and life doesn't make sense most of the time. It's pretty messy and, and difficult, as one author said. He said, life is difficult, and uh, you just quoted a bunch of verses up here this morning, and I'd like to go back to one. It's at, it comes out of Matthew 11, and it's the only place that Jesus ever talks about himself, God talks about himself a lot, and there's lots of characteristics of God, and there are limited names for God, etc., just a myriad of names, and they're fun to study, and they're good for us to study. And, and, uh, but Jesus only talks about himself one time, 
and it's in Matthew 11, about verse 28, and he says something like this. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. Now, I'm going to talk about being weary and heavy laden today, suffering, difficulties, challenges, stress, COVID, whatever you want to put in there, right? So he says, come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I thought most of my life that everybody would want rest. Who wouldn't want rest? Let's take a nap. Let's hang out. Let's take it easy. Let's not work. Let's, right? Well, Jesus gets this text from Jeremiah chapter 6. And I would like to open with you thinking about what Jeremiah 6 says. In the text, it's about verse 13, something like that. It says, everybody is greedy for gain. We live in a world that everybody wants to get ahead. Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants things to turn out good for them in some way. They want to add to their life. They want to gain something, right? We want to be better off tomorrow than we were today. Everybody's greedy for gain. Even the prophets and priests, he, he pulls them out and he says, they're not exempt. They have the same underlying ulterior motivations a lot of times. They're greedy for gain. And then he says they, uh, in that text, he says something like, and they heal the wounds of my people superficially. Now, if you have a deep cut, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I know enough about it that if you cover that cut up and don't let it heal from the inside out, like, like you just said a minute ago, what happens to the wound is it festers. It never really heals correctly. I had a friend that was uh, swiped by the Baylor bear. He was the Baylor bear cheerleader and he was taking care of the bear and the bear got, they, they messed up the gates, etc. and this bear got in the same space that he was in and grabbed him by the back of the neck and just ripped around the back of his head and they sewed it all up and he survived and, but that wound didn't heal and his father was a doctor and he, after a m couple months he looked at the wound and he said what's the deal, you know, and so he opens up the wound and there's a piece of leaf still left in that wound. So it wasn't able to heal from the inside out. That's what the text is talking about. And it says, they heal the wounds of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They're telling you that there's peace when there really isn't peace. You talked about this morning, somebody talked about up here about peace, how important peace is, and that we need peace. And you, it was part of the prayer, actually. Do you want peace? Sure, but there isn't much when we look around us. And the disturbing thing is that there's so much tribulation in our world that we have trouble finding peace a lot of times. Well, the text goes on in Jeremiah 6, says something like this. <clears throat> the author says, there are ancient paths and good ways that you are to walk in, and you will find rest for your souls. But the end of that verse is this, they would not have it. I would think that everybody would want peace, but the text says we don't really. We would rather be in control maybe or argue about things or have superficial peace or some other kind of thing. 
than to deal with life as it really comes. Life is raw, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and until the Lord returns, it's going to stay that way. But the Bible gives us some phenomenal insight to live in this world with freedom and joy and hope and peace all accessible to us if we will but understand what the texts say to us. Well, I don't want to have a superficial healing. I don't want to just talk about something that's sweet and nice and makes us feel better. I don't want to come to church and cover over somebody's pain or wound superficially and say, smile, Jesus loves you, he does love you, but that's not the reason for you to smile only. You've got to be able to embrace the reality of whatever you're dealing with. And it might be, we went to Amsterdam on this trip and we're coming back and uh, the first couple days we were there, we dealt with three friends, significant deaths, deaths of two husbands and the death of a father, all within just a week. And that's not what I went to Amsterdam for. But guess what? That's the rhythm of life, isn't it? We know that. Death is an anathema to the God we serve. It's not who he is. It's not what he likes. It's always obscene. It's not right. It doesn't fit. That's why we have such a hard time with it. That's why it has such an impact on us. It's part of what? The tribulation that we're living in. What does Jesus say? And I think John 16, he's talking to his disciples. From 13 through 17, he's, this is the last time Jesus talks to his disciples. And he gives them some interesting things in there. <clears throat> in John 14, he says, I know what these guys are going to need. They're not going to need more miracle working power. I know that they're going to be martyred. I know what they really need is my peace. And that's what he says he gives them. He says, I'm going to give them my peace. Not as the world gives. <laughs> he modifies it, right? He says, I'm going to give you peace that's beyond your ability to understand, but it's going to be what will sustain you when you're facing martyrdom. And most of those, all but one of them, actually were, were martyred, in fact. I've never really had to face that any kind of threat for my faith, ever, in my life. And by the way, I need to correct something that Tom said just a minute ago, or I'll be in trouble. We've been married 56 years. So you need credit for those last four. Or, or, or I better not walk off of this stage. I'm just saying, you know, if you want to see tribulation, there it is, right? It's just in your own home, you know. Everywhere you turn, this is it. So later in John 16, he says, In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." So, we know the background of this. We long for peace. Peace means to be, have integrity. Peace means to be at one again. Actually, the Greek word means that. To be at one, not fragmented, but together. To be at peace. There's no peace, hardly, any place we turn. So, I'm thinking about how the Bible tells us some things about the Christian life, and Romans is one of the chap one of the books that preaches this strongly. So here's how Romans is structured. There's four chapters at the first, 
one through chapters one through four, and it tells you how to become a believer. So it's moving you from death to life. It's moving you from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. And it's moving you from being not a believer to being a believer. It's moving you from not following Jesus to following Jesus. It's moving you into the light. It's moving you out of darkness into light. It moves you from being actually dark, Paul says later in Ephesians, to being light. It's creating a new creature, brand new, all things. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's not He's modifying those words by saying, nothing's left of that person. Now you are new. That's the first four chapters. Theologically, it's called justification. Pretty exciting stuff. Then he starts in chapter 5 through 8, the next four chapters, and he's telling you how to live the Christian life. Now that you are a new creature in Christ, here's what the Christian life looks like. So here we have up here Romans 5, verses 1 through 6, and I want to walk through them slowly. Because I want to make this point, this is the anchor point for what I'm trying to say to us this morning. This is something I've never seen in this passage before, and it's so impacted me, I want to just share it with you, okay? So he says, you become a believer, now here's how you walk out into the Christian life. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. That's what we've been talking about, isn't it? That's what we're made for. He says, because of your standing now, because of your being born into the family of God, because you being a new person, saved person, a whole person, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. Now, we could spend months talking about God's grace. It's the grace that saves us. It's the grace that's the most disturbing concept in all of Scripture, I think. It's a grace, it's a grace that really turns our lives upside down if we, if we get it. I didn't grow up in I, did, I grew up in a church, but I didn't get the grace message. Part of what I'm talking about this morning is that. How do we access this grace, this hope, these words that we use, this peace, when a lot of times there's just turmoil in our soul? Well, look at what he says here. Into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice, that word rejoice might mean exalt, might mean celebrate, might mean boast, might mean shout praises. It really means that you get excited about this. He says we are to exalt or to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Full stop. Most of my Christian experience has been around the idea of rejoicing in the glory of God, the goodness of God, the majesty of God, the phenomenal ability of God to be God. Let's go back to Exodus just for fun. Just follow me. Moses is talking to God. I like this. They're arguing, actually. They're arguing over whose people are going to be led out of Egypt. (laughs) And God says, I want you to take... I want you to lead your people out. And Moses said, they're not my people, they're your people. And so God doesn't really take the bait and argue with him, but at least they're, they're going back and forth about whose people they are. And Moses said, well, I can't do this. I don't, I, I don't speak very well. And then he said, well, I'll, who made your tongue? So they have this little argument about that. You know, I mean, they're just having this great conversation, right, about 
come on, man, I, I made you for this time. He said, not me, you know, got to be somebody else. And then he says, well, Aaron can talk for you, but you still have to do this job. Goes back and forth. And then finally Moses says this to God. He said, okay, I'll do this on one condition, that you go with me. Huh. And he says, okay, my presence will be with you. And then Moses goes one step further, because he's insecure. And he says, I want you to make all your glory, show me your glory. Do you think God had not shown Moses his glory? Ten plagues, try that. Just happened. Another major glory going through the water and the sea. The entire nation got through dry. The entire Pharaoh's army got wiped out. Exodus 14, it's a great chapter, by the way. <laughs> the problem with it is that glory you can see. Glory is something that moves. A lot of times that's what our prayers are for, is for glory. And look at what God says to Moses. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. We would check the box, I bet, saying that God is absolutely good. There's probably not a person in this room that wouldn't check the box, is God good or not good? And you check the box, he's good. But the Bible says he's absolutely good, not just a little bit good, not sometimes good, not that he's absolutely good. That's what 1 John says. In him is no darkness at all. God is light. No darkness at all. Emphasized over and over again. I think one of the hardest things to do as a believer is to hold steady in a fallen world that God is absolutely good. So if you follow me just a second, we'll finish this passage in a second. Don't take it away. We're just halfway through. So, if God has an intentional will, what he designed the world for before it fell, let's put that over here. And then God has his ultimate will, which we all are longing for, and that's how it's all going to end. And then we're stuck in between. It's what I would call his circumstantial will. It's not what he either intended or ultimately will happen, but he doesn't get lost in the middle of this. And that's my message to you this morning. He doesn't get lost here. And so look at what Paul does to us when he says, you have become a believer in this circumstantial place. It's not what ultimately is going to be. It's not what was intended, but you are here. Here's how God's going to equip you. Your job is to pay attention. He says, first of all, in in second verse, he says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in God's glory. So it's not hard to rejoice in God's glory. That's what most of our songs are about. Let's look at verse 3. Not only that, but we are to rejoice. Here's the same word. Exalt in what? In sufferings. Rejoice in what? Tribulation. Now, so you don't miss this, Paul's putting these two things together. You and I have a challenge as believers, if we're going to live the Christian life with any freedom, with any substance, with any joy, with any real internal peace, we have to hold both of these in tension. The what? The glory of God and the tribulation of living in this world together, at the same time, all the time. 
And what are we to do with both of them? We are to rejoice in them because they represent life and they represent something really key that we miss a lot of times. Here's the key. Romans 8 says, 8.28 says, for all things. What kind of things? All things. All these circumstances we're in, that's not God's intentional will and not God's ultimate will, but the circumstances we're in, that God's redemptive will makes its way here. He says, for all these things work together for, what's the word? Good. All things work together for good. Well, I've heard that my whole life. And I, and it was always pulled apart for me. It was either rejoice in the glory of God or, or hang on for dear life when suffering comes. And that's not what he's telling you. He's telling you, rejoice in these tribulations. How do you do that? What does that look like? Well, here's a little hint. We need to know why we trust God. And if you know why you trust God, then you won't need to know what he's doing or why he's doing it. Should I say that again? We need to know why we can trust God so we don't need to know what he's doing or why he's doing it. Frankly, most of the people that I meet in the Christian experience need to know what God is doing and why he's doing it in order to trust him. And that was Moses. Moses basically said, show me your glory so I can trust you some more. You're asking me to keep leading these people. I don't want to lead these people without more glory. And he said, no, you know what you need, Moses? You need my goodness. You need to know that I'm absolutely good. You need to know that I'm not a cosmic killjoy. You need to know that I'm not a cosmic accountant. You need to know that I'm not keeping score. You need to know that I love you. You need to know that you are mine. You need to know that you're rooted in me. You need to know that I'm giving you peace. I'm not taking it away from you. You need to know that I am meeting all your needs. As Peter says, he says, everything you need for life and godliness is yours. Huh. So I don't even have to ask. Luke 15 says something like this. In the middle of the prodigal son, elder brother says to him, he says, I want a party just like my younger brother. It's not fair that we've never had a party. And what's the father say to him? All that I have has always been yours. That's not a God that's withholding something. That's not a God that's stingy. That's not a God that's waiting for you to perform. That's not a God that's saying, you, you've got to stop sinning in order for me to bless you. That's a God who says, you're mine. You belong here. I like the term that you've used this morning half a dozen times from here, your family. That's true. That's what the church is supposed to be, family in some way. We want security on the outside. So we want to know what God's doing. We want to know why he's doing it so we can trust him. And what he's asking us is he's saying, you can trust me. There's a reason why you can trust me. You need to know what that reason is so you don't have to know what I'm doing and why. I'll give you another quote <clears throat> This one's helped me with this sermon more than anything else. Just listen to it. It says, if you are not anchored in the absolute goodness of God, you will lower your theology to match your pain. Can I say that again? If you're not absolutely anchored in the goodness of God, you will lower your theology to match your pain. 
In other words, you're going to allow the circumstance, the situation, the tribulation, the difficulties, the sufferings, the hard places, you're going to allow that to determine how you do life with God rather than the other way around. You're going to have to you're going to look at who God is and then you're going to go back out here to the tribulation and you're going to say, I don't like this. This isn't what I want, but I can accept it. I can embrace it. I can begin to have a handle on it in some way. So it's no longer controlling me, even though maybe I can't control it. And Paul says it this way. He says it in Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, something like this. He says, all things are lawful for me. Not all things are possible. All things are lawful for me but I will not be mastered by anything. He doesn't say he'll master something. Listen to this. He says, I will not be mastered by it. Now, I bet if I could hear your stories, there would not be one person sitting in here that doesn't have some kind of painful tribu tribulation of some kind, whether it's a death, loss of a job, health, family breakup. Come on, name it. By the way, we're getting close to the happiest season of the year, right? The time when families get together at Thanksgiving and Christmas and all this stuff gets exposed. Thank you, COVID. It's helping expose a bunch of stuff like that. I think that's what COVID has done in a lot of people's worlds. It's just brought stuff to the surface that was already there. and Now it's no longer under the surface anymore. It's why a lot of people are having struggles, and it's, and it's why it's so difficult, and the ripple effect's going to continue for a while, and God, if he's redemptive, is going to be able to use that for good, isn't he? <laughs> if we'll let him. So I'm going I'm to read you just a little thing here. Uh, we talk about people accepting themselves, and it's really fascinating to me that very few people do. It's hard to accept yourself. You, it's, it's hard to feel like you're okay. It's hard to feel like you're acceptable in a lot of ways. And a lot of times this is the, a lifelong course for a lot of people. Uh, we live up to some image. We don't know who we are. We, there's parts of us that we don't want people to see. We just hope our message isn't heard too much. And so here we go. Self-acceptance is like the same thing as accepting tribulation, accepting events in our lives. They follow the same basic principle. You can't change your life. You can't change your history. You can't undo what's been done. I don't care who you are. So many of us get stuck, though, in our histories. And we can't go anywhere. And if we can accept that, if we can welcome that history, if we can consent to our storyline, if we can consent to the events that confront us, we're in a different place. It's not hard, typically, to consent to positive things in your life. It's just hard to consent to negative things. When things don't go as you expect, or things don't go as you planned, or things don't go as you want. We're living with our daughter and her husband, and it was their idea, and they're the ones that are stuck now because the cost has risen so much for, for building. They can't build a house that they were planning on building, and they're stuck living with us. Hi. My 52-year-old daughter looks at me, and she says, I don't like this. And I said, I love you, baby. <laughs> you know, I mean, what can you say to her, right? It's what is. We make it easier if we don't chafe against it. We make it easier if we keep the wound open so it can heal from the inside out. We make it easier if we see it in the light. We make it easier if we can embrace it and accept it in some way. 
You need to handle this carefully. It's not a matter of becoming passive and learning just to endure everything, like persevere in some way without reacting, but whatever we have, however well we plan our lives, situations are beyond our control, involve a whole host of events contrary to us, to what we expect, what we hope, what we desire, if we can accept them, then we've got to figure out how not to do it grudgingly. We have to be able to truly consent to events in our lives in order to not be at their mercy. Do you hear me? You'll be at the mercy of some event in your life, and I don't care what the event is, if you can't accept it. It will take on a life of its own. But if you can embrace it, it'll be a little different. Uh, I wrote down here, it's the, this isn't just to endure something. It's to actually choose, even if you don't have a choice. That's what annoys us, by the way. Choosing here means making a free act by which we not only resign ourselves to something, but we also welcome the situation. This is my story. This is my life. When people tell their stories, normally they tell events that they've overcome. We just do. We tell the negative events. And we tell them if we've survived them, if we've made it through, or if we're even in the middle of them. Those are the events that we'll talk about. My statement to you this morning is we need to somehow embrace those. That's what he's saying here in Romans 5. He's saying, not only that, we need to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And that hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now you spool ahead to Romans 8, and he says the same identical thing. He puts suffering and glory in verse 18, the same suffering and glory that he's talking about here. Tribulations and glory. Same things. What does Jesus say? No one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. You hear? That's John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says, but I lay it down on my own accord. I wrote under that, we always have a choice. It's how you choose to embrace this. And that's all Paul's saying. You're going to live the Christian life? Then let's put these two things together. Glory and tribulation. Let's hold them in tension. Go to, go to Ecclesiastes. And it says there's a time for this and a time for that. And he's put eternity in our hearts. And he's telling you that these times are constant in our lives. And we need to hold them together, not separate them. There's a time for this and a time for that. He's, the and ties them together. It doesn't push them apart. I thought they were pushed apart most of the time. That's not true. All right. I've talked about that enough. I want to talk about something else now. There are two gifts God gives us. One is forgiveness. It's a massive gift. It's a misused gift. It's the primary gift for relationships. He knew that we wouldn't do relationships very well, and that because we're such different people that we're going to need forgiveness on a constant basis. I taught forgiveness for a long time in one direction, and I would teach it differently today than I've taught it before because I understand it differently. But my point to you is that it's a gift to us, it's a tool to us to keep our relationships going. It's the way we access peace. Nancy and I, if, you've ever, if you're around us, uh, everybody's amazed that we've made it five years, let alone 56. 
Thank you. And I'm amazed. You know, without God's grace, I know that this is impossible. But because of his grace, it's been there, but we can't get rid of our differences. So forgiveness then stays alive in us constantly. There's not, not a day goes by, literally, that we need some act of forgiveness to keep us connected. Too many people suffer from long-term injustice where there's no freedom and no joy in their lives. Well, I think the second gift that God gives us is a very tricky thing, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, but I'm going to challenge you with it. It's called lament. And one of the things that a Christian has is the ability to lament. So I wrote this in my notes. I said, the practice of lament is one of the most theologically informed things we can do. I've never been taught about lament. It was years before I ever even read the book of Lamentations. And as I recall, it was kind of painful. Jeremiah's not exactly the happy prophet. You know, he just wasn't buoyant and cheerful. He wasn't a comedian, but he was, he was accurate in our need for this. We live in a world that doesn't work like it's supposed to, and Lamentations is the way through it. Because Lamentations functions in a pretty unique way. Grief, which you're going to have a seminar on coming up here a little bit, Grief points us toward the past. It's necessary. It's connected to hope biblically. But hope is not a past-oriented idea. Hope is a future-oriented idea. The only way you can access hope is through lament. Lament turns you around and faces you the other way. Does the event change? Does the death change? Does the loss change? No. But which way you look matters. Paul says this in Thessalonians. You're not to grieve like the world grieves. He's telling you, you get to lament. So learning how to lament is a specific tool given to us to navigate this very thing that he's challenging us with, which is what? Glory, tribulation, together. And he says, when that clashes, you have to be able to do this. Well, lament is this bridge to hope. Think of two guys in Scripture that had really hard lives through no choice of their own. One's Job, the other's Joseph in the Old Testament. Their stories are aligned in a way because one was human trafficked and the other just brutally lost everything. I, I don't have categories for either of them, by the way. I can, I can read the stories and understand them, but I, don't, I have a hard time empathizing with them. I don't, and then I don't understand how either Joseph or Job kept their feet underneath them and didn't react out of anger or throw a tantrum in some way. Neither did. Both of them stayed steady through a, a really vile time. And the God of the Bible did what he always does is he redeems that evil. He enters into it. He never causes the evil, but he does redeem it. He enters into it to bring good out of it. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And by the way, if you read Romans 8, uh, you'll be surprised what it does to you. It starts off with no condemnation and then it ends with no separation. And in between, it talks about how you're going to be attacked, <laughs> how you're going to suffer, how you're going to not even be able to pray because you, it's so agonizing you don't need, know how to pray. And it's really fascinating to me that both the Spirit and Jesus pray for you, pray for me in that chapter. You've got, you've got lots of allies 
if we pay attention. But too often, we don't get this idea and we think suffering's got to be over here, glory's got to be over here, and you're really blessed if you have a lot of glory, and you're not blessed if you have a lot of tribulation. And that's not where blessing comes from. God blesses you because of who you are, regardless of your circumstances. And if you can't accept your circumstances, you'll miss the blessing. Humans suffer. Believers lament. One author says, if suffering made you wise, everybody would be smart and wise. Wisdom doesn't come that way. Suffering doesn't do anything. Suffering's awful. But God can redeem it. Every bit of it. This is processing, confusing pain. This is a way to not walk away. This is a way to stay in this tension. Paul starts out saying, if you're going to walk as a believer in this world, you need to do these two things. He says, learn how to lament. We believe, but we hurt. We know, but we question. We hope, but we suffer. And it's super messy. We're uncomfortable with it. Spirit intercedes, Jesus intercedes, and at the last of Romans 8, you get all these questions. Who's for us? Who can be against us? Who has a charge against you? God justifies. Who condemns you? Jesus uh, sets you free. Who separates you? Well, nothing can. He answers the questions of, of our uncomfortableness when we're in the midst of some kind of tribulation, and he asks us then to learn how to lament. Just for fun, David wrote half of the Psalms. A third of David's Psalms are lament Psalms. Why? Because he's trying to orient himself to the God of the Bible. What did Job do? The very first thing Job did after he lost everything, his health, he lost everything but his wife. <laughs> Maybe he should have lost her. But, you know, I mean, he wasn't happy with her. She wasn't happy with him. I mean, it was just a wonderful time, right? But he'd lost everything else. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his business. He lost his kids. He lost his... What does he do? It says he worshiped God. What's worship? It's fighting through a lament. It's reorienting yourself to God. Worship is not the same as praise. Praise is a piece of it sometimes, but worship itself is to reorient yourself to the holy. If you are not anchored in the goodness of God, you will lower your theology to match your pain. Well, you can find plenty of stuff on lament. I'm not here to give you a five-step process. You could just read some of the lament psalms. If you want them, here's a few of them. 3, 6, 7, 13, 30, 34, 43, 44, 51. There's plenty of lament psalms. Read them and then write some laments of your own. If you want to get free, this is a great way to do it. So I have two quotes for you in this, and they're a little difficult, but I want you to just read along with me, and I'll try to make them make sense. These are both written about what's called Silent Saturday. I, Silent Saturday is the time between when Jesus dies on Friday and when he rises again on Sunday. Now, because we know the whole story, we typically skip Saturday. But Saturday was silent. And I don't know if you can let that just sink into your soul, but it was difficult to manage that piece of the puzzle for the disciples. So these guys are talking about that period of time 
when we get stuck and nothing makes sense and God doesn't seem to be answering and it's, and it's getting worse and it just doesn't, I can't make sense out of it. If you're not anchored in the goodness of God, you will lower your theology to match your pain. Doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. If you have doubts, don't worry about it. Have them. That's all he's saying. They're the first knock at the door of things that are not yet. Doubt must precede every deeper assurance. For uncertainties are what we first see when we look into a region hitherto unknown, unexplored, unannexed. It's normal for us to doubt. That's all he's saying. Don't get lost in it. Don't believe it's telling you the whole story. Anchor yourself, re-anchor yourself in the goodness of God so that you can ask your questions so that you can wrestle with the puzzlement or the confusion or the fog you're in. Next quote. By the way, that was George MacDonald writing sermons on, that's called The Voice of Job, one of his sermons. So the next one, this is by Alan Lewis. He's a theologian and this is more recent he says this, uh, there is faith, he, he suggests, which has forgotten what it is to doubt. This is a faith that is avoiding dealing with tribulation. This is a faith that forgets what it is to deal with the real stuff of life. And a lot of times we go to church to try to avoid hard stuff instead of opening our lives to it and opening our hearts to it and seeing it for what it is and embracing it and allowing God then to work in the middle of it. We resist it a lot of times. Look at what he says. He says, there's a faith which has forgotten what it is to doubt, a way of hearing which no longer listens to the silence. That's a great line, isn't it? Being willing to sit in silence, not have an answer immediately, a certainty that God it's close, which dares not look into the eyes, still haunted by divine remoteness. We want certainty where what God gives us is he says, you're to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm not going to show you my glory anymore. You don't need that. What you need is you need my goodness, Moses. You need to know that I'm absolutely good so that you don't get lost when you have to face this hard stuff. And that's all he's saying here. And the last line is a hope of some glory other than a crown of thorns. Exempt me from the reality of what's happening. That's the opposite of lament. Real lament is embracing that and turning the light on. So if I can encourage you, my encouragement to you today would be choose to hold these two things together, God's glory and rejoice in it, the tribulation of living in this world and rejoice in it, because as James says, consider it what? All joy and various challenges, trials, tests, tribulation, difficulties, hardship, sufferings come your way. Wow. Let's pray. God, we know, because you tell us, that good comes 
when we but trust you. You told your disciples as you, as you talked to them at the very end, you said, what I'm doing you don't understand now. But afterwards you will understand. Forgive us for wanting to understand when we just need to trust. We need to trust hard and we need to ask our questions and you've given us room for that and you're never put off by it. You relish us learning more and more about you and growing up. And I thank you for Jeremiah who said, it's good to wait quietly, to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good. It's misunderstood by our world as weakness. But it's the very thing that Paul said made us strong when we could embrace believing that you alone are good. Thank you for the freedom we have to live in this world and to be ambassadors of your whole gospel. The good news that radiates not only when glory is shown but also when in the midst of tribulation. Help us, Father, to not lower our theology, but to trust that you enter into our pain, actively redeeming it, so that ultimately you do get the glory, and then we access joy. We pray this in the strong and gentle name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.